Hey folks, welcome to Narratives. Narratives is a podcast exploring the ways in which the world is better than in the past, the ways it is worse, and the paths towards a better, more definite vision of the future. I'm your host, Will Jarvis, and I want to thank you for taking the time out of your day to listen to this episode. I hope you enjoy it. You can find show notes, transcripts, and videos at narrativespodcast.com. Additionally, in this episode, my friend Lars Doucet joins us as a co-host. Well, Marshall, how are you doing this morning? I'm doing really well. It's cool to do this in person. I've not done in-person podcasting in just like months. I used to do this all the time, but everything now for me is mostly just Zoom. So this is actually pretty exciting. This is awesome. This yeah, is, it's really cool. Uh, well, yeah, thank you so much for having us down here at Austin. It, it's great to see you um, and, and just catch up a little bit. Uh, Marshall, do you mind giving us a brief bio and, and some of the big ideas you're interested in? Yeah, so brief bio, I am a podcaster. I host a couple of podcasts. I host one called The Realignment, which is really about like American politics and trends and how the world is changing. Other one is Counterbalance, so it's like foreign policy, mostly focused on like defense. Um, and finally, I do one for On Deck called The Deep End, which is the tech sector and how founders are operating. Good deal, good deal. Uh, can you talk a little bit about uh, you know how you first got into uh the realignment, uh, recording the podcast and the ideas behind the realignment and what really interested you there? Yeah. So two different answers to that question. So number one would be, I used to work at PBS. So I was working on a show called Firing Line, which was a reboot of William F. Buckley's show. And we launched it in 2018 with a new host, Margaret Hoover, um, Herbert Hoover's great granddaughter. (laughs) And what was crazy about that experience for me is the whole idea was like, hey, we're creating this show debates good faith conversation for a new generation. Yet it was done through PBS, aka the most legacy system possible. Imaginable. So the way I think about this is when you're programming a show like that, we would literally say to ourselves, okay, like the the prime viewer for this show is a 68-year-old couple in Boulder, Colorado, <laughs> who at seven o'clock watches the news hour for an hour. Right. They then watch Washington Week. They've bought a bottle of red wine is between the two of them. And then if we get a good lead-in slash guest, they'll stick with you for 8.30. So <laughs> all of those factors together do, does not produce something that is going to really like talk to like younger folks right. um, in general. At the same time, too, this is incredibly expensive. It's in yes. person. It's New York. There's a unionized staff and all these like, different bits. So it means that there's a lot of budget there. Right. So I do this for a year and I start to realize, like, wait a second, like – Podcasting in this format should be cheap. Yes. Right now, we're we're sitting with a yeah, yeah, like a hundred dollar set. Yeah, exactly. Bought once and we're recording it. And what you could actually be doing with this um, idea of like good faith conversation is do it for cheap while also booking the same guests, which is what you can do with Zoom, like actually like online, yeah. because it meant that the once someone doesn't have to go to your place, it makes it super easy to actually do it. So I raised a tiny bit of money, started podcasting, and just been doing it for the past three years. Two, and I really hope that's a real encouraging sign for folks who want to get into this space right now, yes. because it seems so cheap to be like, well, like anyone could do anything now and like look at the wonders of tech, but right. it's actually just true, like unironically <laughs> true. Like- it, it costs basically nothing to do these things. To the the realignment idea, I've always been interested in politics like forever. Yeah, um, I was I was actually part of that like news hour at seven p.m. Nice. household. Yeah, um, but I was basically never really satisfied with like like the status quo. I'm like a super right. contrarian person, so like I was in blue Oregon, Portland specifically. So I was kind of like, oh, like I'm kind of like a moderate yeah, Republican, exactly. and then like <laughs> I moved to like Austin, Texas, and I'm like, okay, like I'm a moderate Democrat. <laughs> I was basically like, never really satisfied with like the specific labels and the way things yeah, were articulated. Exactly. So then this idea of a realignment 
right. really appealed to me. And the idea yeah. of a realignment basically is that during certain periods in political history, labels, ideas, figures, institutions are actually in a state of flux. And what they actually mean are just up for grabs. Gotcha. That's cool. I, I, I'm curious, when you talk about um, the realignment, what in particular do you mean? Do you mean this like realignment of, of working class people from the you know central like Democrat kind of coalitions? I think about this in like kind of the Rust Belt states to uh, Republican voters in Trump, or is it something different? That's a part of it. So, for example, yeah, like what you're talking about, like you're seeing the fact that the GOP is starting to perform better with working class voters in general. You're seeing the fact that the Democratic Party is doing better with college educated voters. Like a way to think about this is, and this is crazy if you think about today's politics. Ronald Reagan won college-educated voters just outright um, in 1984, which is the exact opposite of what you really see today. Another example of this, too, is like a racial realignment. So you're seeing the fact that the GOP is starting to actually perform better with working-class Hispanic voters in places like Texas, Ohio, et cetera, Wisconsin. I just did an episode on this. So like that's an example of like specific demographic realignments. But at a narrative level, I'm also interested in like issue areas that are like redefining themselves. So a good way to think about that is the China issue. The way we thought about China basically before 2015 was entirely different. China is benign. It's something that we could like work with. It's something where we're maybe in competition with them, but that competition is friendly. Now it's much more aggressive. Now we're talking about Taiwan, those different bits. So that's not the technical definition of a realignment, but we should really think of it along those ends. So there's the question of polarization and then there's like this other like sense of realignment. Like, so polarization is like the things we're fighting about and on opposite sides of is different. And that can like rotate is what you're saying. And then with the China issue, it feels like that seems a little more bipartisan to me. So like, are you talking about like a kind of shift in consensus as well is the second way you're using that term? Yeah, that's a good way to put it, which is in an ideal world, a realignment leads you to a new consensus. So a way of talking about like post 1990s politics is it's been just constantly shifting um, between, okay, we want change. So let's go for Barack Obama. We want change. Let's go for Donald Trump over Hillary Clinton. Oh, we didn't like that change. Let's go back to Joe Biden. And then just constantly pendulum swinging. The China issue is one of the few issues where it has just taken itself to its final concluding point, which is we are in an adversarial relationship with China. The debate is what, like, what we do with that. But ideally, across every single issue, we would get to some sort of consensus position whenever this realignment is complete. Gotcha. Well, what do you think special about China, in the China issue in particular, that, that lent itself to is because it's like an adversarial competing power? Is that why it lent itself to kind of this consensus in American politics about kind of our stance? Yeah, that's a great question. I'd say it's that the issue is very empirical. So the worst realignment issues are issues that are moral, more like, about, about like morality and like value judgment. So like with student loan forgiveness, yeah. there's a real debate there. It's not, I mean, yeah. obviously like there are numbers here, but there's a debate about forgiveness and a question about like who deserves what in society and what like the proper things that we need to really value. With China, it's very direct. The question is, Okay, 92% of semiconductors come via Taiwan. Taiwan is a democracy. There's a huge set of like allied countries, whether it's like Japan or South Korea or Australia, that would be that would be incredibly under threat if the Chinese were to invade Taiwan. That just means that there's actually we're not debating the things and what they mean. The question is how you respond to them. So that's really why you can see, okay, we all can agree there's a China that's being aggressive 
towards Taiwan. That's why there is consensus. That's why you have Marsha Blackburn going, but also Ed Markey going. Ed Markey's the you know uh, a senator from Massachusetts. He's like a Green New Deal senator. Marsha Blackburn's like an anti-big tech Republican from Tennessee. They disagree on pretty much everything, but they do agree on is this like, okay, how do we respond to this threat? Like, once again, like this, I don't like the whole, like, we have lizard brains. So we don't want to focus. Like, I, th- I, think, I think that's like really lazy. It's a little too like Malcolm Gladwell 2000s-y. But I think there's just something to be said about like when things are direct and not up for grabs, you can respond and assess that. So what are some examples historically of his successful realignments that have taken us to new consensus? It's like, uh, the first one that comes to mind is like World War II used to have like, you know, who was the the aviator Lindbergh? Charles Lindbergh. Yeah, yeah. He was very America first. I think even like openly pro-Nazi. And then like afterwards, like after 1945 and like the whole war and everything, like we were like super united around, you know, the choices we made in World War II. What are some examples of like what you would consider successful historical alignments that moved us to a new consensus. Yeah, so I'll pick, uh, there's a bunch of these. There's actually this great author called Frank DiStefano who's written a book on realignments. Some people really like his episodes on the realignment, so I suggest folks check those out. But two I'll pick out is starting one, just the New Deal era. So I wouldn't just say like, World, I wouldn't just say like World War II. I would actually say that period of like 1932 through 1945 where you have the you know FDR administration forge a new consensus on both like the role of government in public life. So like that's, once again, like whether or not you like like the specific way that social security is structured, like whether or not you like have specific qualms with like New Deal programs, there was a way that the US thought of like the role of government before 1932. Yeah. FDR, his coalition, forged a consensus on that. And this relates to your Charles Lindbergh point. The other part of that consensus was America's role in the world and assuming the mantle of world leadership from the British after their empires, you know, obviously killed or given its death kneel during World War II. So that is an example of how the next 45, 60 years, there are debates. So there's a debate about do we privatize Social Security? Yes or no. There's a debate. Do we have Sweden and Finland enter into NATO? But the debate is not actually, oh, the US is going to go back to the way it was, where we are just like this island of tranquility away from the problems of Europe and Asia. So like that's the consensus. But I'd say the second one that things folks will probably think about because it relates, and both these realignments are helpful because they're also relating to challenges we have today. So the 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 FDR period is useful because on the one hand, whereas this domestic debate, like how should the government approach student loans? How should we approach questions like healthcare? How should we address these issues of like public goods not being affordable? That's a debate about the side of the government. Um, That's domestic. But then um, there's also a debate about what our role in the world should be. How should we respond to a rising China? How should we deal with Russian revanchism? Like those different bits. The second one would be the... um, the industrial revolution. So that period from like the 1890s to like the 1910s where there's a debate of like, okay, so capitalism is really growing. The US is like clearly going to be like the leading economic power of the 20th century. How do we structure government to either enable and or restrain those forces? That's the progressives. Those are those different bits. Those are examples of how you had a world that looked different after they were done. Gotcha. Uh, You you mentioned uh, FDR there. And I'm really curious it, as a successful realignment and, and the the New Deal and all this like building this new government infrastructure, um, I, I get the sense that the the new everyone in the New Deal it's a bunch of young people kind of like us and they they would send us down you know rural Arkansas electrify Arkansas you know here's a couple million bucks uh, kind of like it, tech now where all the competent people seem to go into tech to build companies. Um, do you think it's pot? And I get the sense that the American government does not work as well as it did when uh, during the New Deal 
when FDR was in power uh, and we were building these kind of federal infrastructures. Do you think that's true? And, and what do you think we can do to actually kind of improve American governance at this point? It's a really interesting question because if you take what you're saying literally, like does the American government work better? Yeah, it obviously works better. Think about like the amount of gotcha. like power and money and resources the American government has access to. So from a pure, and this, is, this actually gets to the core of the dilemma, yeah. I would actually probably argue with the exception of, you know, Obamacare, healthcare.gov, yeah. like that, that that disaster in 2013, a yeah. billion dollars for a website that doesn't work. Actually, government works really well um, at what it's actually doing. Like, like, like we, we spend trillions of trillions of dollars and it like works. Like we give payments to people during COVID, like yeah. all, it works. Um, I think what you're getting at, if you're taking the idea of what you're saying yeah. is, it feels like government cannot meet the challenges yeah. Yeah. that are actually in favor. It, 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 it can't actually do those things. So for example, if I'm talking about how, well, actually, what are you talking about? Government works great. What I'm really saying is, during the Great Society period, government got into all sorts of places, welfare, aid to children, those bits, and government is still pretty good at doing that thing. Government's able to do those things, but that's not the challenge. The challenge right now is not like, how do we send people $2,000 checks? That's something we're actually very good at. The challenge is not like, hey, like how do we have like a multi-billion dollar military that employs millions and millions of people. That's not the challenge. The challenge is, oh, hey, like our energy infrastructure is a disaster right now. Oh, it actually turns out that our government isn't effective at like controlling the price of healthcare. Oh, it feels like the society itself is stagnating. That's a different set of challenges than the one that I think our government is really set up for. So to your question of like, what do we really do about this? I think it's I'm, uh, I, I, just, I just did an episode on Shinzo Abe, you know, the yeah, recently assassinated yeah. former Japanese prime minister. And I was reading um, the, the, the author who I spoke with, Tobias Harris, like wrote like the last biography of, of Shinzo Abe. And he's, he was, you know, he lived in Japan. He's really studied him. And he talked about the speech that Shinzo Abe gave where, he, where, where, where Shinzo Abe specifically said, quote, my mission is to bring Japan to the level where it's ready for like the waves of the next 50 to 100 years. Which, which I just think is awesome. I think that's like I think that's a great just like if you're like in startup, like that's just like a great like mission statement for what yeah. a politician is. And I think that's what we're lacking from government right now. I, I think what we're lacking right now is, okay, like let's just like set up like what are the specific problems? And you can actually articulate most of these problems in a way that doesn't have to be like partisan. Like it's not whether or not you like renewable energy or like oil and gas, like Texas's utility infrastructure is a disaster. Right. Um, that's not up for, like, there's no debate there. Oh, I, I lived through it. <laughs> I, I, yeah, yeah. We, we had right. we had no power. We're like, where are we going to get water in? Yeah. yeah no. That doesn't have to be partisan, but what that could actually lead to is, and I think, and Catherine Boyle and I on our American Diamonds yeah. have talked about this, like, I think the way we get through this is the current set of challenges like that is going to lead to newer generations of politicians who are responding to different incentives. So you're talking about like, oh, everyone's like going into tech. You've noticed this, like everyone in tech is talking about politics now. Um, like it, tech is incredible. Tech is so political. Yeah. It's not even funny right now. And that existing is going to create new incentives. So, And you're saying that's a change. Like 10 years ago, tech wasn't as politicized? Or you're not saying yeah, that. Yeah, so yeah, exactly. So like tech, tech, tech was political and says right. that everything's political. So tech was giving money, people were going to join the Obama administration. Sure. But tech is interested in shaping narratives. 
and the actual set of I think about like the thing, imagine American politics as a chessboard. Tech is actually interested in shaping the actual nature of the pieces and where the pieces can move. Like let's think of like Mayor Suarez. I think this got kind of superficial and isn't going to lead to anything bigger. But Mayor Suarez is like, hey, like oh wow, like there are all these like tech founders and VCs who have a lot of money, a lot of resources, like big audiences. I'm just going to like say how can I help. And I'm going to be like very friendly with them. And I'm going to talk about yeah. Bitcoin a lot. Is that going to lead somewhere like super game changing? Like probably not. Like look at the price of like Miami city coin, right. but <laughs> that is an example of how other politicians are going to start following that point. Right. So the reason why I love the American dynamism episodes I do with Catherine is I always get so much feedback from non-political people. So like non-political people are, sorry, non-technical people, non-technical non -technical are like, oh, wow, like, that was like really interesting. I never like yeah. thought of that this way. You're going to start seeing more people respond to things in that dynamic. You're going to say people say, yeah, like I want to live in a more dynamic country. And that that is an example of how it's just like nascent, but that's how I kind of think, think there's a way through. Well, so this, this is a good segue to this half-baked idea I have about an internal realignment because there's this general sense, I'm not sure if it's actually bears out, you know, to smart people like yourself, you can tell me if it's real, but like everyone I talk to feels like the national level of government is just like frozen, you know, filibuster every election. It's like 51, 49 or 50, 50, you know, and we're just sitting there getting nothing accomplished and nobody can get their way. So we can at least see if anyone was right. You know, all our presidential candidates are historically unpopular. It's always like the world's least popular candidate against the world's second least popular candidate. You know, and I feel like there's this energy of people like, well, we got to get stuff done somehow. So let's move it perpendicular to this axis of trying to get things done at a national level. And what you're talking about kind of like rhymes with that, this like notion of like tech getting interested in politics that it's like, well, if the government's not going to do it, then like, let's start doing what we can with the levers of power that are available to us. What, what do you think of it, my half-baked idea of this internal realignment? No, I agree with it. And I kind of would frame it as follows. The real question is like, where is like the center of gravity yeah. in American politics right now? So the way, to, the way to think about this is that from post-FDR era, there were things like welfare reform in the 1990s where you had a lot of like innovation in the states, like Wisconsin. Um, Tommy Thompson was the governor, but partially influenced the way we reformed welfare. But like it's just all been about DC. And I think what's interesting right now is that whatever solves this national impasse, these different arguments, these different frames, like they are actually going to come from folks who are outside of the specifically like toxic like nature of like DC right now. So American dynamism isn't the answer to everything. But once again, I will say this again, I keep hearing from folks like left, right, and center how the idea is very interesting. That is an example of how you're having people who are outside of the specific gridlock and toxicity coming up with like different articulations. I also think at the same time, you're going to see an environment where if DC is gridlocked, then there's an opportunity to engage in places where things are not as gridlocked as well. Um, it, it's kind of unfortunate that like Gavin Newsom is not a particularly like effective like presidential candidate because there is just a world where you could see, okay, look, like Florida is just like a red state now. Right. It's controlled by Republicans. Like it or not, they have specific visions of how you should address education, how right. you should treat COVID, CRT, schools, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, culture wars. That's the red version. Then you got Gavin Newsom. California yeah. has like an opposite answer to every single one of these fronts. An interesting situation is you could really have like that California vision versus the Texas versus versus 
West Texas, because like Texas politicians for a variety of reasons can't go national as well. Yeah. But like, so it's really like Florida and California, just like those two visions. I think eventually you're going to basically see that happen. Like what happens when politicians are able to like uncontestedly, but actually I'm going to do something which isn't helpful on a podcast, like backtrack a bit. <laughs> yeah, no, go ahead. Because this is actually kind of the reason why I actually don't believe this as much especially on the Democratic side, is that, and this is actually why Texas is a really interesting state. I don't think states where any party has like one party control are going to produce the movements and figures who can win nationally. Um, I did an episode with a guy named Peter Leiden about this, where he's like, California, he, he did this piece, um, California is the future of American politics, like Jack Dorsey um, retweeted it back in 2018. And his point is like, look at California. California is this dynamic part of the country. It tends to lead American politics. It gave us, Barry, you know, it gave us, it gave us Reagan, Barry Goldwater performed well there in Orange County. It gave us Arnold Schwarzenegger, who was like a really pre, a prelude for Trump, not in terms of policy, but in terms of like, hey, this is a guy who's able to go outside the party system yeah. and take power. So we can think of California as the future. The reason why I said that isn't true is that because California is not a competitive state, any politician who rides to the top isn't actually competing in the spaces the that require, that are actually like the center points of the political system. Yeah. So for example, if you are Kamala Harris, Kamala Harris has never had to grow up in an environment where Republicans could ever win. Kamala Harris isn't trained to give a good answer on CRT to a skeptical audience. Kamala Harris isn't actually really structured to engage in an environment where like you just generically could say whatever you want to have to play to your base. Um, I know this in Oregon, like Oregon's a state, which is hundred percent blue. It's been there for a while. Yeah. It's going to stay there for a while, most likely. And that's an environment where you're selected for how do you rise up the party system? Yeah. How do you basically like wait your turn? States like Texas are interesting as they get, I, I think the whole like blue Texas thing is like overstated, but like Beto's not doing too badly. Um, per, you know, it's purple. Like I think yeah. Matthew McConaughey probably would have stood a more of a decent chance at winning. He was yeah. ahead of, you know, Abbott by like over like 10 points. <laughs> and once again, like that's like, you know, right. once things start, it's different, but that yeah. says something. Matthew McConaughey, and Matthew McConaughey, who was able to win the Democratic nomination and win the governorship of Texas, will get a better training in how to navigate the pressure points of like American politics. So, like, okay, like guns are polarizing, abortion is polarizing. Yeah. How do I basically thread this needle while still getting a majority coalition? Exactly. Texas is an environment for that. New York City isn't, and California isn't, and Florida, Florida kind of is. So that's yeah. a, that's why it's a that's a long answer, but I think that like gotcha. that's that part of it. Uh, you said Florida is, but but I what I get from uh, what you just said is perhaps we should be like long, like Glenn Youngkin, like the Virginia governor, and like short DeSantis at some level. Exactly. No, that's a, that's okay. actually that's actually a great way of putting it. You know, I, I have a bunch of like conservative, like Hill staffer friends. Like yeah. everyone, everyone has their group chats, and they're talking about how like they're just shocked at how well Glenn Youngkin. Yeah. has consistently navigated these moments. Like once again, he's like a Carlisle group, like <laughs> yes. super like rich dude, but he has been able to thread the needle on like CRT issues. Right. He's been able to like thread the needle on like, once again, like this isn't like an endorsement of his positions either, right. but like he's been able to like successfully like communicate these issues like very effectively. And that's like, that's actually a good point. Like Virginia is another good example where, yeah. and this gets to, I think like the broader toxicity of politics, like could Glenn Youngkin like win a Republican primary? Um, at the presidential level, like probably not, yeah. but longer term, it's really those purple environment. And, and, and this is what Glenn Youngkin also gets yeah. better than a Charlie Baker and better than a, um, the, the, the governor, the governor of, uh, Maryland, whose, whose name, uh, escapes me, which, which it really shouldn't, um, 
because th- those are both Republican governors right. who are um, leading in blue states. Two different models. So those blue state Republican governors, what they have done is they effectively just govern as like center-left moderates. Gotcha. Well, that's the reality. The reality yeah. is the political classes on the Democratic side in both states are just very ossified and they're just boring. What they come and do is say, look, here's the deal. You don't like the establishment on the Dem side. Yeah. But like I'm safe. If you're Charlie right. Baker, you're a healthcare executive who's very much like this like country yeah. club Republican tradition. And then the government is like centrist. Right. That isn't useful at a national level because like that's not like that's just like not the replicable situation. Right. They effectively can govern by not having to make like a, those difficult choices. Glenn Youngkin is interesting because he's like a moderate by background who is still doing the tough thing, which is like making a choice. Gotcha. Which moderates don't like. As a moderate myself, like we don't like doing that. Like it's easy. Right. It's, what, okay. what, what Glenn Youngkin is saying is like, no, look, like I read center right yeah. in terms of my affect, but like actually, like I'm a Republican, so that means that like yeah. I have to be like a pro-life person. Right. So he's saying, how do I articulate pro-life positions? How do I like talk about CRT without going all like Dan Bongino, right. but also just being like, I think this is like out of the norm. So like, that's another reason why it's kind of interesting. Cause then the one other thing I'll add to this, and this is why I spend way too many episodes, like going after Andrew Yang, uh, <laughs> way too many episodes. My editor was like, dude, like we get it. Um, <laughs> My beef with people like Andrew Yang is like, that's what ineffective centrism looks like, which is basically like, oh, like, it's not that we have to make tough choices. And it's not that like, there's this actually binary moment. It's that there could be all these other centers and they're actually just aren't. Yeah. Yeah. The reason why the abortion and gun debate issues and race and CRT issues are so like terrible, um, aside from like the actual facts. Right. Um, I mean, from a political perspective is like, actually, there are just like two choices. Like yeah. either it's too easy to get an abortion in this country exactly. or there are too many abortions or or, there, or, or it's too like locked down. Yeah. Um, either there are too many guns in this country or we need to have more restrictions on guns. Like yeah. those are actually the only yes, answers. It's binary. It's binary. And I really beef with moderates and centrists who basically hoodwink people. Yeah. Into thinking that oh like you're ticked you're ticked off at how polarized things are. What if there was something different? Um, a question I asked Andrew when he came on the podcast and he did not give me a convincing answer. So I will. This is a bad podcast. Instead of just giving a follow up, <laughs> I'll just like whine about it. Yes, like, yeah. A year later, I was like I was like Andrew. It's great to say that like you know you don't like these binary choices, but who would you appoint to the Supreme Court if you were president? Yeah. Because the second he would have to make that choice. The forward party, obviously being like a center to center left institution, they'd pick what would almost certainly be a pro-choice nominee. Okay, then we're back where we started. You know, it's kind of like, I want to hear your guys' thoughts on this, because like this is where I'm like, the the Mugatu scene in Zulay was like, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills. Okay, we're talking about supply, right? All American politics is, it's like a series of coalitions. The fixed group, there's moderate tech bros, there's like... (laughs) Yimbies, they're NIMBYs, they're leftists, they're working class people, they're like LGBT people, all these different groups. If all we're doing is like adding another set of parties, it's still actually the same number of people. So you actually haven't increased like supply. So it'd be kind of interesting to say like, what if we like, what if we like brought in like a hundred million new immigrants who didn't have like the set of like biases, who didn't have like all these different things. You could just say this. I was like, hmm. That'd be a kind of an interesting experiment of adding new parties. But we have the same set of coalitions, and all we do is like throw them in the titles. I'm like, wait, like, 
the let's say the Yang Coalition, let's say they get like a third of the vote. They take the tech, they take the tech bros, they take um center centrist, center people, they take the country club Republicans, they take the Biden Republicans, they take a Democrat who's like, I can never go for Bernie Sanders. The second you have a Supreme Court justice, where the only actual questions that matter are gun guns. And abortion, oh, and by the way, like the student loan thing's probably gonna go before the Supreme Court. So that's another example where that really matters. They're gonna end up caucusing with the Democrats we're back we're, we're right where we started. So like, I really, if I could give one thing for listeners, it's like really think of these things as coalitions and things will make a lot more sense. Is that like a kind of like even super case of like Arrow's theorem that it's like, because of the way our government is structured and the way we fight over things, like- you're, we're, we're just like eternally doomed to like kind of sort out into a, a, a bipolar kind of coalition sorting, like not just because of the election system, but because eventually you're going to have to decide who you to appoint to the Supreme Court. And then you're either with us or you're with them. Great question. The thing I push back on is like the idea of like the way our government is structured, because that's just that's just politics. But even like a fascist dictatorship has to make a choice. Like Xi Jinping has to decide like, hey, do we invade Taiwan or not? Do I go for my third term or not? Do I like, what's the deal? Is the Chinese, should the should China have a zero COVID policy or should we open up? Like binary choices are inherent in governance. And too often, because I really like, like where your question is coming from, too often reformers do this kind of annoyingly like technocracy, if we could turn the dials to the right degree, we could fix everything by saying, you know, if we didn't have first past the post elections and if there were open primaries and if there were more parties, it'd be different. Like sometimes that could be true, but right now we're in a binary moment. And so much of what people are gonna get over, have to get over the next three or four years is the fact that during binary moments, it just sucks. Right, right. So is it something where, like, yes, on the margin, like, maybe you do, like, approval voting and it's, like, more median candidates and come down the pike or something. But at the end of the day, like, all the applause lines and political speeches are, you know, getting the other side in some level, it feels like. During a moment like this, yes. And, like, if it's if, – and, look, this is why a, I'm always, like, thinking about, like, book projects, like, way, way, nice. way, way down the line. Yeah. It's something I'm really interested in is just, like, as someone who's born in 1992 – like looking at the 1990s and treating the 1990s as like, wow, there was this moment where like everything was kind of, and once again, it wasn't awesome, but there was a chance to forge a new consensus. There was approach to all these different, and we, and we didn't take that for a variety of right. reasons, but basically like that is a period where there were opportunities to be like very positive and ability, not just have to go for the applause lines, right? Like gotcha. Al Gore is like running on climate change and talking yeah. about reinventing government. And that was like a real project yeah. that he did, like the information superhighway. Like yeah. that just isn't one of these moments. And there's this like really just deeply, and I think we'll get to my role as like a podcaster later, but a very concerted decision I've made, um, is, and I'm blessed to be able to like make a good living this yeah. way is like, Look, I could get a lot of clicks telling you guys that this is like easy and straightforward and that you're one <laughs> final victory away from defeat or from victory. Yeah, both true and untrue. Um, I think if, if you're if you're Blake Masters running in the Arizona GOP primary, yeah, yeah. the Arizona GOP Senate seat right now, um, and now the issue, the, the, the race is swinging around the abortion issue, um, that's actually an example of how a victory at the Supreme Court could actually lead to a defeat yes. at a senator. He's down 10 points now. I'm stealing one victory away from defeat from now on. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, that's great. That's great. That's great. Yes, yes, absolutely. That's the nature of these like high stakes moments. So, but it's basically basically just sort of like, look, guys, like accept the fact this is difficult. It's not easy. And this is what this just looks like. Like, you know, I'm sure like if you're sitting in 1892 
I'm sure you're like, oh man, like all these changes are afoot. There's all these big political issues. I don't really like the governing class. I'm not, I'm not too hot and bothered about Glover Cleveland. If I told you, but guys, like it or not, in the like 1910s, there's going to be this progressive movement and all these changes are going to happen. That would that wouldn't state right. anybody. Exactly. But it's also just the harsh truth. Like the harsh truth is that if you're looking for big victories in the 2020s, like you're not going to have a good time. Exactly. And what I think my goal as like a community builder, as a podcaster is like, how can I help people come to accord with the fact that the debate is like, what do we do in the 2030s? And how do we make the 2020s just not like a loss? How do we like minimize the damage? Yeah. And then how do we actually enter into a people where we actually can do bigger things? Because I think that time is coming, but it's easy just to like, remember all the takes were like, oh, like COVID's gonna, we're gonna open up and we'll have like a new American like renaissance. Or, that, that, that didn't happen because that's just not what the 2020s were ever gonna be. Yeah, it reminds me of like how everyone just like thought we were in this big moment where we're gonna like yeah. change everything. We're gonna reach this new consensus. We're gonna come together. Just like we thought that after 9-11 too. And we came out of it more polarized than ever. And so I'm kind of wondering, uh, you've talked about this a lot in your podcast, this notion of like, vibes right how everything is just vibes <laughs> like nobody hard. cares about policy everyone just cares about how you present and how badly you can bloody the nose of the other side at least on the national level like is there any hope of escape from just the rule of vibes in the 2020s is that the mist we're trying to just like fight through so i would push back i'd say actually i think people care about policy like a lot yeah. like for example like president biden's Poll decline started during like a, a bot, like regardless of what your position is on like whether we should have stayed in Afghanistan or not. Yeah. Like I think the the terrible way the withdrawal was implemented, like yeah. that significantly affected polling. Um, decisions like how you handle the Ukraine war, like people, I, I generally I generally think people care about policy. When I talk about vibes, I'm basically and it's 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 ephemeral by definition. But when I talk about vibes, I'm really talking about the ability to just like read the room. And actually perceive like where politics are. There's this like fun German word, which I found was just like this failpunkt. And it, and it means like, it's like in a battle, it's like the center point. It's like, it's like, if, if, if I was reading this book about uh, Napoleon and like, basically the point was like Napoleon could like always find the Schwerpunkt in the battle. There's this huge battle versus these huge armies, but there's like this really, like this point. So when I talk about vibes, vibes to me means like a if a politician is good at this, a politician could pick up like, okay, like, oh, wow, like the country's like not really feeling it right now. And how do I speak to that? How does this change the way I perform? Um, and I think it's kind, of, it's kind of funny, like, I think a politician who's done a great job of this is like John Fetterman, like whether or not he wins. Um, and this isn't exact, like this isn't a science, but look, Oz's vibes are just off. Yeah. Um, Oz is very clearly a dude who was like, hey, like, I'm a smart guy. He is a smart guy. I'm a smart, like, accomplished guy. I'm telegenic. I'm good at TV. Look at what Trump did. I could do that. Yeah. And what Fetterman just very accurately assessed, whether it's his team or him, is like, yeah, yeah this, it's just off. This, this dude just isn't from here. Like he, it's, it, it, it's like this dude was just sort of like, you know what? I'm just going to like move to PA. Yeah. yeah, like I'm not really from here, but like I could pull it off. I'm just going to do it. And he is just calling it out. That's an example of just like reading the vibe. Like he's not like Fetterman isn't making this right about like universal health care and like policy because like that isn't the vibe of that, of that campaign is not. But it, it, the vibe actually isn't about policy. In that case, there's just something like broader he's picking up on. Um, and, I, and I think that like in an ideal world, you'd have a combination of like 
policy. Like we had a Q&A, we had a Q&A um, from a uh, listener where they're like, do you think Fetterman's going to be a good thing for American politics? Whether you're left, right, or center, I don't think John Fetterman's going to change anything like personally. Because like what he's doing, he's got the vibe down, but I don't find him particularly impressive as like a, I think, I think he's going to be like a, once again, this is fine. He's going to be a generic, like left of center, a bit left of center Democrat. Mm-hmm. Um, that's just, that's going to be his thing. He's going to, he's going to vote. He doesn't have anything. I don't think he has anything particularly useful to add. I will say, I think his like mode of dress is probably like a really bad thing. Cause this is also something that I talk about a lot. Like, yeah. Yeah. This is, I, I this, is this, this is a this is a this is a real point of uh, frustration for the audience. So like, there's a lot of like populist people listen. I would a lot of people who are populist who like listen to the show and they're like, Marshall Sager, like, why are you guys mad at John Fetterman for like, wearing shorts and sweatshirts? And why do you get mad when you have a picture of a GOP senator with like flip flops and shorts like walking around Congress? People are like, all I care about is I want people who do the right thing. I don't care what they look like. And the real conundrum here, two things. One. We've kind of run this experiment. Think about it. Like we've had declining dress standards since the 1960s. Has that produced better policy? Like it's at a very basic level. It's like, wait, so we've tried your experiment, right? Like we don't dress like Don Draper anymore. Like we don't have evening dress. I'm not saying that was like a good thing. I'd say that's definitely like way too far. We don't want to be like the man in the gray flannel suit. I should not be like, if I ran a company, I would not have people like, if the realignment was like bigger and in person, I would not say like, you guys better wear your suits because if you don't have a pocket square, you're disrespectful. Like, that's not my vibe. But my point is we've experimented with decreasing dress standards and we haven't gotten better policy. All we've actually gotten is a real lack of respect for institutions. Because for me, and maybe this comes from like being in a fraternity and like being sort of like institutionally focused, the reason why John Fetterman is supposed to wear a suit is because John Fetterman, when he's in the Senate, shouldn't matter. If you are a senator, you are ultimately one of 100 people in this institution which represents something bigger than yourself. So guess what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what you, John Fetterman, want to do. It matters that you're in this institution, and in this institution, there are rules, and you follow the rules. In a weird way, I'm realizing I'd probably be fine if they all had matching track suits. Like, <laughs> like, 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 something. It's something. something. It's yeah. something that where it's just like, you do not matter. Because what people should really understand is that a lot of the time when they see politicians like dressing down and not like institutionally like, hewing to rules, they read it as, oh, they're, they're like, you know, they're cool. None of these people are cool or casual. Because it's like, it's like this, it's the same people. Like a person who's running for office now is the type of person who would have run for office in the 1960s. So it's the same personality type. Obviously, like arrogance and narcissism are probably like required to operate in the federal level. So I'm not just giving cheap shots, but it's the same personality. They are just doing it in a disrespectful manner. They are actually just saying, like, you know what? Like, I actually just don't feel like dressing up. So I'm just like not gonna do it. Yeah. So you're not getting better policy. They're being kind of cynical and it's just sort of bad. So what I will really end with here with is like I advocate for just uniformity of dress. But even if everyone gave the Zuckerberg out, if everyone showed up with the Zuckerberg, like Everlane t-shirt of jeans and like new balances, I'd kind of be okay with that because it would represent. Subliminating your narcissism to the institution and to the actual role that you have. Right. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. That's interesting. It seems like a, this is like a super underrated uh, a point. Like it, just the at some level, it feels like you know we have this crazy polarization within the last twenty some odd years. Um, I guess you know maybe it starts with Duke King Rich. Maybe it's been going since the seventies. I'm not, I'm not exactly sure. Um, but but how much do you think it is uh, the fact that people and, and politicians have at some level gotten more individualistic or does that not matter at all? 
No, it's a huge, it's a huge, so a good, good question. Two parts to that. So one, yeah, that plays a huge role in it because under previous systems, like the party had just total power. Yeah. This is where I get really annoyed when, you know, people like Andrew Yang talk about <laughs> how, oh, like the parties, they're so powerful. It's like, A, the Republican Party didn't have a platform in 2020. Like straight, <laughs> straight up, up. The convention. <laughs> they, they, they did not vote on a party platform because what everyone understands now that the party doesn't actually matter. I kind of think of parties as like a record label. Um, like the, the party is just like, Hey, like I'm like moderate. So like I'm a Texas Democrat. That says something about me. Right, right. Oh, Hey, like I'm in Oregon. I don't really like the status quo. So I'm, a, I'm an Oregon Republican. Yeah. This is a party label. In the past, there was literally a smoke filled room where they <laughs> said like, literally these are the rules. Here's what you're gonna do. These are these yeah. bits that are happening. And look, it definitely like went too far. Um, it was something kind of crazy, but I just recently learned is like, think of like the 1968 presidential campaign, like yeah. RFK wins all these primaries, he's assassinated. But even if he'd won those primaries, it was technically possible the Democratic Party bosses would have not actually given him the nomination, would have given it to Hubert Humphrey, the sitting vice president. Now it ended up, you know, happening because like the assassination, but that could have ended up happening. That was not a good world. But if we think of these extremes, we've swung too far to the other extreme, where now every single individual politician is incentivized to ignore the institution, ignore the coalition, ignore the teams that do whatever they want. So right. this is really why I really think folks who like are dissatisfied with the status quo should really ask themselves deep questions about this moment, which is that like, how has John Fetterman and people like him thinking that I'm here for whatever I want? Right. Right. And let's, let's be good faith, because I think I think John Fetterman seems like a nice enough guy. Yeah, I'm here to interpret whatever I think the people, broadly speaking, want. Gotcha. It's just too far, because the incentives just really stack up. So to the point of polarization, yeah. that's a situation where as the party has lost control and everyone can do whatever they want, and during an era of like low institutional and like, like low yeah. trust, it's created an incentive where politicians basically just go hog wild and do whatever they want. And to be like a boomer for a second, if you go back to the founding fathers, <laughs> right. they would say like, that's not a good thing. Yes. Like it's actually like not a good thing for a for a senator to think like, hey, like I can just do whatever the heck I want, right? Because like I'm judging it to be the right thing. Because like something I'm really interested in too, and this is also why I push back on people who argue we need to have fundamental reforms of the system. I think we just have we're just at late stage we're at late stage folks who just grew up in the old world. If you are a senator now, if you even if you're like a Gen X, like late stage millennial, like you yeah. just grew up with like the 1990s and the 2000s, like as your actual model, you don't know how to operate in a space like we have today. So like they just have like it's just a disaster, like bad incentives, like the wrong actors. And one other quick thing I'll add too, because I know this people are probably thinking about this. This is, however, also why I to go back to our earlier conversation, why I think folks should really think about the whole idea of like DC being toxic. This is also why we shouldn't think just electing more young people inherently like actually fixes it. Because like when we elect young people, we just go into the system and they just like replicate the badness of like this system um, on all those like different different levels. So that's why I think like someone who I'd be really interested in politically is like, let's say there's like a tech founder who is in like some like American dynamism space. Actually, no, like uh, let's think of like Ryan Peterson from Flexport. I would be interested in how someone like him responded to the political system because Ryan is deeply aware of like supply chains. Um, that's actually an issue. It's like very up for grabs. Like he can really build things. He's very fluent. He's very talented. 
I'd be interested in how someone like him like behaves in a political system 10 years from now. So what, what would happen if he were senator from California? Yeah. Um, now, that being said, I think if he were to get elected now, it wouldn't lead to anything because he'd be entering into the toxic system. But yeah. like, right. that's my point about the 2030s. It, uh, I, I would demand fundamental reform of the system as if I could demand things. Yeah. If in the 2030s, when you have time to work these things through, when you do have the world change, if we still can't do things then, I'm like, okay, that's kind of the thing. Yeah. So one of the things that, that really strikes me about that is that you've, you've got this kind of like seizure of the standard means of control. And it kind of rhymes a little bit with me with like other places we've seen those disruptions, you know, with like standardization of media or whatever. It's like you guys are busy disrupting right now with podcasting and things like that. And um, it feels like right now, like you've got institutional DC, you've got this gerontocracy, right? And then you feed young, ambitious people like AOC into it, and then they start coming out kind of like standard issue Democrats or whatever. You can push back on that if you disagree with it. But like, um, there's this notion of like, you've, you've made this case that like DC is just this machine that like turns people into people who perpetuate the ineffectiveness of the system. One thing that I've noticed is everyone I talk to, they care about such a different set of, like when I said vibes before and you push back on, I actually agree with your pushback because people do care about policy, but the kind of policies like, I mean, people care about abortion, they care about CRT, but they also care about all these other issues that like don't really get play at the federal level. You know what I mean? Like, it's really interesting to me, like on the federal level where, where like Biden can't decide if home prices going up is good or bad. You know, when you like see them like talk about this, it's like, you know, and and all comes to other issues like with, with um, student loans, I guess, is something that is in play right now, you know, but it feels like, you know, in the UK, they're debating like the cost of living crisis and all these things. I feel like there's all these issues that don't get play that are more like um, and, and you're talking about like the Flexport CEO. You know, I wonder if in the 2030s we can have this more of a sewer socialist and whatever the conservative equivalent of that kind of movement of a get things done and solve actual problems for people movement looks like and how do we get there? Yeah, so a couple of things to that. So number one, I would say, but I wouldn't actually describe DC as a gerontocracy because as you even stated, there are plenty of young people yeah. who who are elected. Like a, a, last night, a uh, Gen Zer won a Democratic primary in a very strong blue seat. So we're probably gonna have our first oh, wow. Gen Z member of Congress. So it, it's not that they're, it, the issue is just all these old people. And like funnily enough, like, I think that Joe Biden was more in touch with the country than like Pete Buttigieg or Kamala Harris were. And debate debate how Biden has performed. But I just, yeah. Biden, I really push people on this. November 2020, Joe Biden, yeah. as a very old man, had an accurate read on where the yeah. country was. Yeah. And right. the standpoint of that moment yep. relative to his much younger competition. Yeah. So- Pushback or gerontocracy. Here's the actual issue in DC. I think the issue in DC is no one basically knows what they're doing. <laughs> oh, that's not good. In, in the yeah, sense that, like, yeah. so for example, like, let's talk about AOC for a second. Because I actually really don't like when, you know, like super like leftists are like, oh, look at AOC. Like, she's just like a total sellout. She's kowtowing to Nancy Pelosi, always different bits. Like, look, like, the actual thing is like, what exactly is like AOC supposed to do? Like, the system just won't let her do what she wants? No, it's she doesn't know how to do what she wants in the system. So, for example, so here's an example of this. Like, and this is like, if I could sit down with AOC, I would genuinely ask her this question. She is fascinating to me um, because on one level, she is very eloquent. She's yes. very talented at social media. But she has this terrible habit of polarizing herself for like no good reason. So Green New Deal, already a very polarizing thing. Why then is she deciding to get in fights about Latinx usage? Yeah. 
Um, but January, like, I, I, did, I, did, I did an episode on this that will probably come out by the time like this is out. Um, and look, like I would never like use the term Latinx. I would say Latino, Latina. Um, like I'm a fluent Spanish speaker, so I just wouldn't do that. But at the same time, I get why someone would say Latinx. Yeah. So just shut up. Like, why, 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 don't talk. Like, why like, that why, thing? why yeah, exactly. would you, if the issue right now is that any issue if it's touched instantly becomes toxically polarized. Yeah. If you're already touching, let's say the Green New Deal, why would you also become known as a person right. who's getting in, getting in polarizing fights about Latinx? Why are you deciding that it's a good idea to get in Twitter fights with Ted Cruz? Yeah. Because <laughs> like what's going to happen is with those two issues, Ted Cruz fights and Latinx, they invariably are going to infect your position yes. on Green New Deal. Yes. It invariably is going to affect your position on the uh, on student loans, right. like another incredibly polarized yeah. issue. Um, so my point is, it's not the system that's breaking AOC. Like Biden just passed probably like the strongest like climate legislation yeah. we're going to get in a way. She's getting no credit for that. And that's because she fundamentally did not operate properly. And I think from a playbook perspective, yeah. and this is why like I think there are a lot of people who just like are keeping their heads down right now, yes. as I think they should be. People are going to learn like, okay, interesting. You have to make choices. This right. is what Glenn Youngkin knows. Yeah. And that Charlie Baker doesn't know. Or maybe it's not up for grabs for him. Yeah. Um, they they're they they see the governorship. Glenn Youngkin wants to be president. Yes. Charlie Baker knows his best bet is health and human service secretary. Exactly. <laughs> HHS secretary. <laughs> but if you're if if you're if you are a smart, like kind of leftist person, you're thinking, like, okay, I am gonna have to make a tough choice on the Green New Deal. Yes. I'm not gonna get into Twitter beef with Ted Cruz. Right. And I should also think to myself, yes, I get a huge like Instagram following, but like to what end? Like this is always like, like my favorite. Help? Like yes. this is my favorite thing. This is what yeah. we're seeing develop. Like yeah. there's this obsession uh, with saying like, oh, like these millennials and EOC, they know how to use like Instagram. But I'm like, okay, but like to what use was it? Yeah. Well, like it think about it. Did, did AOC's mastery yeah. of Instagram get the Green New Deal passed? Did it make her the centerpiece for climate legislation? Right. Is she better set up to win the New York primary if she ever primaried Chuck Schumer? The answer is no. So during this period of figuring it out, people are going to be, be people are going to sort. Right. And and that, that's basically like my point. So like I don't think there's anything so to, to 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 close it. Like I don't think there's anything systemic that's breaking AOC. I think she and her team are having to make tough choices where a lot of the time they're wrong. Okay. So, like, back to the point then. So, that, that covers AOC specifically. But, like, to the more general point yeah. of, like, whatever the DC machine is doing and what it optimizes for, it seems like it's not serving not just the method of not getting things done, but also, like, these other issues it feels like that a lot of people care about that don't necessarily get play because they're either not – they don't have high culture war valence or they're not the kind of things that the people in the institutional fights are caring about right now, you know? And so – how do we get them to care about them in the next 10 years? And this is, okay, so this is helpful. Like, frankly, this is kind of the way that's done. So like, no, seriously, like <laughs> the, 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 the thing that's interesting, if you look at like young politicians, young politicians are able to like notice things. Um, like I'm really interested, like I, I read a lot of like political biographies and I'm like really interested in like, what do people not in power think? Or what are people who are yeah. going to be in power? A good example is is the following. Remember during the height of the supply chain crisis mm -hmm. when um, you know Ryan Peterson is out in the boat um, right. in the LA Harbor, like literally like live tweeting yes, the yes, problems, yes, yes, and it yes. actually leads to some big people food and doing these kind of stuff. I've asked this to so many people. I'm like, why wasn't Pete Buttigieg 
That's such on a great the boat question. with him. It's a great question. It, right? Like, do you realize how much of a win that would have been? Yeah. And you could say to yourself, like, well, you know, that infrastructure, it's not like a sexy issue, but like, yeah. but this is where vibes come in. Right. If Pete, my, Pete Buttigieg should have been on a boat with Ryan Peterson saying, yes. hey guys, Christmas, the holiday season is in danger. Yes. Let's yes. save Christmas. Let's, Let's save Christmas. Christmas. Haven't you guys all basically noticed right. to the start of this episode yes. that America doesn't seem to work that well anymore? Exactly, exactly. Well, I, Pete Buttigieg, because he's a self-interested politician, yes. I'm working with my good buddy, Ryan, yes. Yes. to dynamically fix this problem. And the Biden administration is going to fix this problem. Yeah. That is what political talent is. So, because I've asked a bunch of friends of mine, like I've asked, like for example, like friends of mine who are like state reps. Yeah. Um, a, they don't know. Who, they don't know who Ryan Peterson is. They is don't that the really issue? know. They don't really know the supply chain issue. Yeah. Because this current set of people, yes, whose ap approach to politics was formed in the 1990s yeah. through the 2010s, they are not good at what politics actually is. And I think if Pete Buttigieg were as impressive as people say he right. is, he would have been on that boat. Yes. Because I'm just sort of like, how are you missing yeah. this? But the answer is he's missing this because he's too stuck in the current system. So you're saying it's not that he decided not to get on the boat. He wasn't aware that he should be on the boat and he wasn't aware that there was a boat. Exactly. Like that, no, that's actually exactly it. Like, and this is something that Catherine Boyle and I talked about. Like she was saying the thing, a reason she's optimistic about American politics, people like wrote in about this point. She's like, and I, I hate tech propaganda. I hate <laughs> even the like even 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 the like the founder conversation gets a little like awkward sometimes. Yes, yes. To be entirely honest, but I think this is an entirely a good fifth true point. She's like at a core level, like being a founder, like selects for certain skill sets. Yes, you are addressing problems. You're attacking them like exactly. with aggression. You own things. You're accountable. Like that's the deal. Yes, that if you are smart, you are a politician. Listening to Catherine Boyle saying that. Yes. And putting that into your system for what I should actually be taking on. Yeah. So if you're, once again, and this, this is this is like the funny take, like, and this is what I'm, I'm still wanting about AOC, but I think that she's the way that the media talks about this point, because we're talking about media yeah. right here. What I love is like, you'll, you'll I did this uh, interview with two New York Magazine reporters who wrote a book about AOC, and they made the statement that, quote, student loan debt is like the issue of, of, the, of the millennial generation. And once again, this isn't about debating like the policy yeah, yeah, and the yeah, approach. Like, I don't think that's true. Like I actually, I actually think that if you even like, hey, like most millennials don't even go to college. Yeah. So they don't even have debt. Yeah. Or if they do have it, it's like not as high. Like right. th that is an example of like missing where like the shrimp point or missing where the center exactly. of gravity is. Yeah. The center of gravity in American politics post COVID in September, 2021 was, holy crap, everything is so broken. Yes. That needs to be fixed. And I hope that politicians and wannabe politicians are noticing that right. and saying, okay, I'm gonna do that. And another thing, and this is this is also something that I this is something I really just like wonder about. Like, and I think that this is kind of like an example of how um the polarization is gonna be fought back against. I'm fascinated by all these politicians who like just very clearly like wake up like every single day yeah. and are like, let's polarize things like even more. <laughs> right. So like there's like Let's let's just double down and make everyone mad. Yeah, like like yeah, yeah. like like, like th th this is this is the funny. So like Marjorie Taylor Greene or yeah. like Lauren Boebert, yeah. right? Yeah. Like I'm picking on the right here, but I think they're two very prominent examples of this. Yeah, and I think there are structural reasons why this tends to be more of a right issue than a left issue. Exactly. Like ultimately, because the right is like anti-government, like you right. said, like it incentivizes like Democrats have their own problems, but this is their version exactly. of this. 
I have never understood why someone just doesn't turn to like Lauren Boebert. So, dude, like, can you just you like doing? stop? Yeah, can you just stop? Like, <laughs> you, like it's like, like what are you look, doing? the country like sucks right now. Yeah, everyone feels like the country sucks right now. I don't get the sense that you're waking up every day and trying to fix those things. Exactly, you're basically saying to yourself like, hey, how do I get more retweets by making a certain group of people more pissed off? Like that is literally all right. they are doing. Yeah. and I don't understand. And this is why, like. My dream, my dream, Pete Buttigieg. <laughs> yes. Right. If I were like Liz Smith and advising, I'd say, yeah. dude, like what you should be doing right now is be on that boat with Ryan Peterson. Yep. And then when Lauren Boebert is annoying, say, dude, can you just not? Yes. I'm here fixing stuff. Yes. Everyone's exactly. exhausted by this. Like I, I kind of call this, I, I told this to my like fiance, I was like, it's kind of like muscular normism. <laughs> it's kind of like the whole like, why can't we get along with the Washington of old? It's not like yeah. that lame, like kind of like, yeah, exactly. I mean, David McCullough just like passed away and I think he's yeah, a great yeah. biographer, but it speaks to this very like Tom Brokaw and the greatest, it's like, exactly. it's taking that notion, but putting it like muscularly. It's like, exactly. why would anyone want any of these people right. to be in charge of anything? Exactly. These polarizers, like these, like, like that's all they are doing. Yeah. It's like, dude, just start your podcast. Exactly. Right, and like, and, and do, like, just don't, don't take anybody. public funds to yeah. grow your Twitter brand. Exactly. Me and my co- and this could happen left or right, right? Yeah, there yeah. could be like a right of center version right. of like because like Kevin McCarthy, they don't like they, they don't like exactly. they don't like MJT NJT either, NJT either. So it's just sort of like, why can't you just say if you're a successful American politician today, like my coalition is this country's broken, we're gonna fix it. If you're not, like, we could have different solutions to exactly. the way those exactly. things are fixed. Exactly. But if you're not on the train, like get the f off. Right. But I, I, I think that is what, like, that is what the basic point would be. Like, it's in, it's like, because think about this. Like, think of the world we like grew up in. Like, if you told 1990s us, like, age yourself up. Yes, yes, bed, yes. You know, there's going to be a world where, with like all the wonders of Amazon and all those things, <laughs> it might be possible that like you might not get goods that you ordered for Christmas. Yeah. Like, I ordered furniture. It takes months to get things. Like. That Morgan. is like, that's crazy. Like that, yeah. that's actually, like, if you actually sit down and think about that for a second, like that's insane. Messed up. Our political project should be making that like not a thing. Exactly. And anyone who isn't on board that go off to the side. Um, so like, that's, that's my real, like I genuinely have not had a convincing, and this is why I love being in tech because I think tech gets this, Yeah. but there, and, and that's the, the, the whole, like, Oh, like there's a gap between tech and why it, yeah. it's a cliche. I think it's like not that helpful, Yeah. but the weird world we're in right now is that, oh, actually, this is helpful. The weird world we're in right now is tech is living in this future. Yeah. And I think it's very on it on a couple of different things. Tech is talking about supply chains. Tech right. is talking about dynamism. Things don't work. Exactly. Tech has been yeah. on China. Tech was right on COVID at the start. But they're also terrible at living in the present world. Right. So I'm sure you guys may have noticed this, noticed this on Twitter, but there are all these like tech founder VC types for the past year have been like tweeting out some of the most like right wing <laughs> red pill stuff. And then the Dobbs decision comes out, like o- overturning yes, Roe yes, v. Yes. Wade. And then they're like, oh my gosh, what happened? Pull the brakes. And I'm like, like, guys, like are, are you serious? Yes, but yes, people, yes. Like, uh, there was just announced that, you know, David Sachs and Keith Boyer are hosting like a major like yeah. fundraiser for Republicans in Miami. Yeah. We're like, what? Oh my gosh, I'm they're like, doing guys, it. Like, yeah, duh. Like, come what on, do guys. you think the red pill like, was? And I'm not saying like, because once again, like abortion is like a serious, like weighty issue. Yes. But that's like my frustration with tech where it's like, you were so focused on the fact that like, once again, like, I think, I think Keith and David are great at talking about like, 
what are these like IRL problems right. in America right now that techs need to think to do a better job on? Exactly. But people in tech also aren't good at saying like, okay, cool. Like, but what is, what do they think about like the current issues like right. of today? Yeah. So I think a, my dream world would be a world where like you could merge like tech's ability to diagnose specific problems in America. Cause I, I think tech and venture are good at giving you this skill set, but too often tech looks at this current system, the gerontocracy, whatever, and basically treats it like legacy hardware mm. and wants to just like wish it away. Right. And like wish that this is their version of the Andrew Yang trap where they're like, man, like these parties suck. And they just like wish them away. And basically just like, just think about it. Right? If, you're, if, you're, if, you're, if you're pitching a VC, you would not do it that way. Yeah. But that's not actually an optimal way for navigating a system. Well, it's like like crypto, like grappling with regulation coming down the pipe hard and fast, you know. But that'll take us off topic real quick. So one thing I want to talk about that I think segues into this pretty well is this notion of cost disease socialism. And when I say that this for the audience's sake, I'm not necessarily like trying to like make a capitalism socialism point. It's a very specific phenomenon. And this ties into student loan, um, the student loan debate and things. And um, so like... I believe cost disease socialism specifically applies to when you restrict supply of something, but also subsidize it. And Econ 101 tells you that sends the price right up. And so like Noah Smith's talked about it. I don't think he invented the term, but he like has written about it. And um, so this is basically like a kind of like, it's alleged that this is like a worst of all policy intervention because you don't get any more of the stuff. Like the goal is to get abundance, but instead we just make the price higher. And um, I think that's basically Sagar's entire point on your pod uh, on on breaking points, and uh, maybe he's brought it up on the realignment. Um, I was wondering what your thoughts on the theory of cost as leads to socialism are, and also specifically about whether that's actually what's happening now with certain of our policies in in um, medicine and housing and higher education and things like that, like all these issues that like people really care about. No, I think it's a great way to put it. I'd say, you know, focusing on higher ed specifically, that's the issue I'm most, most focused on. I think it fits yeah. with um, conversation we were having earlier about like issues and like addressing things. You see the cost disease socialism thing happening in the sense that like all we seem to know how to do is subsidize things. Right. Um, so all we know how to do looking at the higher ed system, which yeah. everyone agrees like doesn't work or isn't optimized. All we know how to do, we want we to do two things. Or, sorry, we know how to subsidize things. We know how to, and we also know how to unhelpfully unsubsidize right. things. So yeah. like, for example, an example of the unhelpful is like, after you know the 2008 financial crisis, like states like severely cut aid to public universities, yeah. which like obviously like led to putting that on students and athletics exactly. and other different things. And like, we could obviously have a debate in our society, like what is a public good? Like right. what should the university system look like? Like the university of California was not only super cheap because like inflation was lower of education costs, yeah. but because the state of California was like, Oh no, like we think it is a good thing for our state to do that. Yeah. You could take a different perspective on that thing, but that's what like the unhelpful version is. Yeah. And then when it comes to subsidize, so that, I think that's the Republican version of this yeah. the Republican version is higher ed sucks. So like, let's just like, unhelpful we cut funding exactly without like tying that to something specific oh, exactly um then the democratic version of this or like the left version this is where the socialism comes in honestly is okay so we see this cost is really high we see people have all these problems let's subsidize via increasing pell grants right and this is one of those right. big disasters where like we increase the size of the pell grant a pell grant is like aid for people who like need it Right. But then, like the inflation of costs over a ten-year period, like literally ate up the ate up the amount of like the increase, so yes. then we're just stuck again. 
Um, maybe you get help the first year, but then it's we're back at the end, or by, by blanket student loan forgiveness, or just by like overly generous like loan policies. Yeah. So in my version of America, and I think, and I think once I, and I think this is what is going to be selected for. Because gotcha. this is the because once again, what's funny is I can have this conversation with anybody who's not captive to the incentives of like the status quo, where you would say to yourself like, look. The issue right now isn't really like, do we like extend the student loan pause? The actual issue is that our higher education system is like super broken. And part of what may get us out of that would be, okay, let's make sure that we reform the system. And then we should probably like forgive loans to people who got screwed by the previous system. So this is, and this is one of my favorite. Because I think student loans are just like the most fascinating topic ever. It's it's but but it is it's so it's so interesting because Let's think about this like rhetorical bit that people just sort of take, which is basically like, we shouldn't be, you know, we shouldn't let people take out loans for like underwater basket weaving or like always <laughs> sigh and like wow. the government just says, we'll give you a loan for anything, you just do it. Yeah. But dig beneath that for a second. And I talked about this on today's episode of The Realignment. Um, what operationally happens is we get into a society where only upper middle class kids like me could get poli sci degrees. Right. And if we actually talk this out, we actually don't want to live in an America where if you're lower middle class or poor or working class or middle middle class, you have to get like a STEM degree and all like the artsy farts and liberal arts degrees are for people like me. Um, that's what you operationally are saying when you're saying we shouldn't just subsidize our underwater basket weaving. So a way to have that conversation is, okay, should states furnish more funds for education? That, that, yeah, that's exactly. the way you could do it. You could say, you could say like, hey, like in Oregon, because I'm at the University of Oregon, we don't want to live in a state where, where you can't, where, where only rich kids get to do fun degrees. I don't want to say fun, like, like, like we don't want to live in a state where like STEM. It also happens when people talk about apprenticeships. Yeah. Like, it, it, it gets like it. it my, my my number one like point of frustration is when like, and I'm sorry, this is a this is a polarizing word, but I would say when privileged people like me say, "Why don't we have enough apprenticeships?" And it's like. I'm gonna be honest. Like my kids are probably not gonna have apprenticeships, right? They're not gonna. They're not gonna do it. Um, and I'd be honest if I was like, man, like, come on, dude. Like, you, I, I was gonna be the podcast buddy would have gone to. Why don't you go full ride? Like, why? <laughs> yeah, you, you need to put in 40 hours of podcasting before you can become a journeyman podcaster. And <laughs> no, it, 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 that's the yeah, that's the that's the that's the take there. So it's like that's the underlying system. Like we could talk about like what do we want to actually look like, and then forgiveness. The degree of free subsidize could be the end point of that because people are going to get, someone's going to get hurt. Someone's going to suffer. And that's what coalitional politics looks like. So like the, 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 the system, once again, this is why we're talking about what are we selecting for? What sucks about right now is we are selecting for people who either do nothing, which is basically if you're a Republican in Congress, you're interested in like just dunking on higher ed and how it sucks. Um, or you're saying unhelpful things like, what's like, I, I hate this talking point too, where you're like, the endowments are so big. Let's take the endowment money. Because A, like to talk about this point, when people talk about big endowments, they're talking about like Harvard, all the things that are LPs. A, like Harvard actually spends like a decent amount of money on students. Like yeah. if you, if you, if you are making, if you're famous less than 80K, you will probably go to Harvard or Yale for very little money. Yeah it's subsidized via the endowment. Like Harvard and Yale are not the cost of like, are not the cause of what we're going through right now. And I also think it's so funny that like on the one hand, like Republicans who are anti like wealth tax, anti like one-time wealth taxes on, on, on Jeff Bezos because they would be unfair. 
which they that would be just unfair to say like you know what like i'm just gonna wake up and be like yeah. you know what like we're just gonna take your money like after the fact this is the same exact principle and it's just bad and it's also wouldn't it's, it's also another it's, it's also it'd be a one-time tax yeah. so right like, it wouldn't it wouldn't wouldn't stop the thing. but then the left version of this to your, to your point is okay we know this thing is too expensive yeah. let's give people it without doing it so like, i want a politics where we like start from wait this doesn't work Let's work to make it work. And part of what makes it work is how do we deal with people who are screwed by the previous system? So here's an interesting thought. So like one of the pills I've taken recently is the Norwegian resource management pill. So I'm, I'm a Norwegian citizen, so I'm a little biased here because I'm standing for, for the home team. But um, I read this research article this year, which like really opened my eyes because like Norway has this famous sovereign wealth fund in oil. And I read recently about it. And what surprised me is that it was not set up by Norwegians or not entirely. The kind of per the person who spearheaded it was a, well, he's a Norwegian now. He's an Iraqi immigrant. And he was just ditzing around for a petroleum job. He's like, you guys need any petroleum engineers? He's like, we just discovered an F ton of oil. We have no local industry. What should we do with it? And he's like, I've seen this before. I've seen the resource curse. And he had this really interesting insight and apparently the people, the Norwegians who set up the hydropower management industry 50 years earlier had the same insight. And so they both had the same solution. And it, it really dovetails with cost disease socialism, which is this notion that when you artificially restrict access to a resource, either through it's just naturally restricted because it's scarce or it's artificially restricted through politics. A good example in America would be my narcolepsy medicine. It's a simultaneously Schedule 1, Schedule 3 drug, so the government in its wisdom has granted a monopoly to one company. So when you create those artificial restrictions or natural restrictions, you get what we call a resource rent, a overabundant super profit because nobody can naturally compete with you or competition is constrained. And Norway's solution to this is not like, like American socialists like love to talk to me about Norway all the time and how it's perfect, knowing very little actually about Norway. And so Norway's solution is to tax the resource rent at like a really punitive level because it's basically just an ongoing windfall profit, but leave a normal amount of profit if you were actually a working for a living company. Mm -hmm. But then, you know, you have the Brian Kaplan's of the universe that come in and it's like, well, this is going to discourage innovation and research and exploration, you know, because like the companies are going to whine that it's like, oh, there's so much R&D and it's so expensive. And so the Norwegians will subsidize the R&D and the exploration of oil, but they will tax like punitively the oil that comes out of the pipe because um, so that you don't have people just like sitting on the wells. And, you know, and this is me just giving you Norwegian propaganda here is that it seems like over the past 50 years, it's really worked. It seems like in a kind of industrial management policy that can kind of be abstracted away to other issues of scarcity that like instead of subsidizing the wrong thing and taxing the wrong thing, you tax the right thing and you subsidize the right thing and you can kind of actually get abundance and competence and not set the ocean on fire like other national oil companies sometimes do. Um, I was wondering if you'd heard of this approach before or what you what you think of it. You know, I mean, feel free to push back and tell me it's nonsense. You know, it's just it's just like taken over my mind lately. Yeah, I've never I've never heard of it. Uh, I think it's an interesting idea. I've, what I think about when I hear something like this is just like my immediate reaction is just sort of like, man, like, it's not useful unhelpfully comparing countries to one another. Because mm -hmm. um, you just gave this whole like complicated history of how I could have this thing. And it's like very unproductive just to look at Norway and say, oh, wow, we should be like that. You kind of see this in like the gun debate. But when it comes to 
I'd say my, when we just say my number to take away, we've just basically been like this idea of like subsidizing the right things. So subsidizing research resources, those different bits. I also just struggle with the fact that it doesn't seem like we're going to have in subsequent decades, the equivalent of we discover oil. Right. And that's like the, inter- that's the interesting question. And the other interesting question too, is if we did, would we have the foresight to go the Norwegian direction or would just status quo happen? Well, so like, for example, like why, why does, maybe you don't know this, but like, and I don't know that either. Like why does like Alaska um, give like um, Alaskans like a portion of like the oil profits right. um, versus like maybe like Texas or other resource rich places. So I'm like, we do actually, we do have, a, it's, it's a tiny crappy version of the Alaska one. I think it like funds teachers and stuff. It like is actually like paid out of our so oil. So you mean Texans? Yeah, yeah, yeah. To, Just got here, so I have no yeah, idea. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Texas has like a crappy miniature version of like the Alaska fund. Like some of our oil dollars like goes to pay some teacher systems. I don't know a lot about it. All I know is it exists and it's not as good as Alaska's. Yeah, so that's the, the real question is like what, how does a society respond to like opportunity and abundance? And I think the pessimistic take is I don't see this as being a moment where we would respond to the great hydrocarbon boom in the, quite the same way. Right, right, right. Uh, Marshall, uh, one more question here. Uh, what, do, what do the next 50 years look like for you? And, yeah. and how do you see your role in American politics evolving over time? So it's funny. The I usually talk about this in private, but I was just like, okay. well, we got I'll, it too. I'll, I'll, articulate, <laughs> I'll articulate it in terms of politics. So listeners and to your podcast and to my podcast will notice that like I'm very like bitter and annoyed towards politicians. <laughs> and that's because of the fact that like I'm like a reformed politician kid. Gotcha. Um, so what I mean by that is like my, <laughs> this is so cringe. My email address in high school was Kozloff2020 at yahoo.com. Nice, nice. Obviously I was going to run for Congress back in Oregon yeah. in 2020. Yeah. Um, and I genuinely, you know, a couple of things happened in the 20 times maybe like not want to do that. Yeah. So I look at these conversations and these people yeah. through the lens of like, oh, well, like I wanted to be them. Right. I wanted to say like, how would 2020 what Congressman Marshall like respond right. to these things? So what really happened, and this was like a really just like humbling moment, is I woke up one day, I was like, oh wow, like if you were a congressman, you would probably not be doing any of a better job than AOC. Because if I were a congressman, and this is leading to your question, if yeah. I were a congressman, it would have meant that I would have stayed in Oregon. Rather than going to DC, yeah, most likely I would have stayed like in like Lake Oswego or like the Portland metro area. I would yeah. have like worked for a state legislator. Exactly. I would have like worked my way up like the greasy pole, get elected, yeah. and then do these do these different things. Yeah. But the thing is, I would just be a useless politician. Because think about like think about what I think my actual useful insights are like the supply chain issue stuff, yes. the China stuff, the yeah. defense stuff, the tech stuff. I wouldn't have experienced any of these things. Right, I would have just been. Once again, not captive to the system or like yeah. the Democratic Party, but to the incentives or to the like unmolded models. Right. So I now think of myself as like, okay, so like you're someone who could look at this environment as like a, as a reformed politician type, which gives you unique insight. Because yes. I think too, like it actually kind of frustrates me when you see. It's kind of funny because when I'm when I'm when I'm talking to people who are talking about like reform and why it doesn't right. happen, I'm like. Too often, outsider populist, like decentralized critics, they just don't get it because they're not yeah. those types of people. Yeah. So, like, I always get in this huge fight with, uh, like, mostly like kind of like leftists about like money and politics. Right. So, like, I, I was talking to Kyle Kalinsky, who's like Crystal Ball Sagar's right. co-host, co-host, 
also fiance, so these things stack. Um, <laughs> it's not just CNN that has nepotism <laughs> issues. Um, side note. Um, but we were talking, and Kyle was talking about, he was saying, quote, you know, like the only reason why Republicans like don't favor universal health care is because lobby, healthcare lobby is giving them money under the table. Yeah. And I'm like, dude, that's just like not true. <laughs> and here's the way to run this experiment. Um, the way to run this experiment is if you went to Madison Cawthorn and were like, hey, Madison Cawthorn, guess what? I'm going to give you like a donation if you were to come out in favor of universal health care. Yeah. Or hey, you go to, uh, you go to, let's say, like Josh Hawley, say, hey, Josh Hawley, you're very like yeah. pro First Amendment. The uh, Bloomberg lobby is going to give you a bunch of money and right. you're going to be, and you're going to, no. Like, because once again, as a politician type, I actually know how politician types think. Yeah. If you are in this political game, obviously there's the side conversation about like stocks and right, buybacks yes, and those yes, bits. Yes. But politicians, the more polarizing the issue, the less likely they are to actually think about money. Right. The, the, the funny take here is that the more to the side an issue is the more likely there is to be a corruption issue. Got it. So like, let's say it's like a weird like pharmaceutical bill carve out. As a torque regulation kind of That's thing. an interesting conversation. Yeah, yeah. And I'd be curious like where that Senator yeah, or Congressperson's yeah, yeah. yeah. uh, chief of staff goes after that bill passes. Right. I'd be very interested if that person became a lobbyist afterwards. Yes, yes. But when it comes to the polarizing issues, money does not dictate it, gotcha. but genuinely. Yeah. So what I'm trying to do as a podcaster is I want people to learn and understand that so that they can see the system as it actually is and understand the actual problem. Think it is. Michael Bloomberg could spend $10 billion and it would not convince a single Republican member to say, you know what? I actually think there are too many guns in this country. Yeah. Um, because once again, they're not responding to money. They're responding to actual opinions that actual people hold yeah. in those different bits. So speaking to my role then, I just want to keep talking to people. Nice. Um, I I think it's like super cool that, you know, we could like meet each other like on Twitter yeah. and just talk and this will get out there. And I'm just not, I had to make a decision. It's kind of funny. I have this experience a couple of times where I could be, this is going to sound very arrogant, but I'll just, I'll plow it. We're, 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 we're deep, so I'll plow ahead. <laughs> it's a podcast. <laughs> I could be much bigger than I am very quickly. And by that, I mean, I know what episodes do super, super, super Is that super like well. leaning into the culture war? Or like, no, or not like, even that. It's not, it's, not even, it's not even culture war. It's just like a certain style of podcast. Right? If you just wanted to min-max it, you know, just yeah, for some Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just like min-max it. Gotcha, like if gotcha. I was just sort of like, look, I need to get the maximum number of advertiser dollars or downloads. Yes. I know how to get the realignment to like 125,000. Yeah. Like listeners just like that. Yeah. I've done episodes. Like, for example, like Peter Zion did a Peter Zion episode. Yeah. 350,000 views on YouTube. Popped. Yeah, it popped. When we have whenever we have like Eric Weinstein yeah. on pops. Yeah. I think those are valuable conversations. But I think what I'm more interested in is growing slowly and honestly feeding people their vegetables sometimes. Yes. Um, so look, I wanna I wanna do an episode. I'm doing an episode at some point in the next few months on like aircraft carriers. Cause like I actually think like all I think about is like Taiwan is Taiwan. Yes, yes. Um and the China crisis and all those different bits. And I keep thinking to myself, like, man, like I wish I could have gone back and studied Ukraine and Russia and modern war back in 2017, 2018. Right. But I did. And be aware. I think people have that opportunity right now with like the Asia yeah. Pacific yeah. and naval power and those different bits. I want to be a podcast where someone is sort of like, oh, wow, that's like really useful. And like right. the, the, the win for me really was, okay, cool. I did this episode with Bridge Colby during my yeah. like daily Ukraine series. Um, he's like a defense policy guy. 
a bunch of people message me. They're like, hey, like we're passing this around. Like, this is getting passed around Senate offices <laughs> uh, awesome. because it's just good. It's just like yeah. helpful. And like that's 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 like genuinely like what I want because part yes. of what I did when I like put away um, like politician Marshall yes. was to say to yourself like, okay, it feels really cool. Like I get noticed when I go places. That's really cool. But and I think this is to my credit. Yes, I was able to like take that feeling and say, okay, that's cute. Like, that's cool. Yes. But that's not what's most it's not important the thing. to me. It's, it's, not it's, the thing. it's just like not yeah. the thing. And, I, and guess what? Like, I'll get there in like ten years. Yes. The, the question, and I think too many creators in our cohort are like not answering this question the right way. Yes, it's absolutely true. Like, there, there are so many people who are getting so big and so hyped, and like, I'm sort of like, there, there's just no there there. Right. And you could say what you want about like the old system. You could say that Kara Swisher is just like not with that. I know people in tech don't like Kara yeah. Swisher, but when Kara Swisher was my age, she's writing two very good books about Amazon. Um, in the 1990s internet, she actually knew what she was talking yeah, for. Yeah. And what frustrates me is this current moment selects for people who are good at getting very big. And I basically hold the position, much as I say that right. um, the set of politicians who are going to like really succeed and yeah. get us out of this are keeping their heads down and are basically not a part of the system. Right. I actually think like the, the, the defining like media yeah. personalities right now are not like optimizing themselves for going viral on TikTok. Because gotcha. I actually think that TikTok is selecting for specific skill sets that aren't going to return for long-term value. Much longer game. Is that the whole like AOC optimizing her Instagram and not optimizing getting things done kind of thing? Yeah, it's it's, it's basically, and that's a good way to put it. I, I would, my, my advice for politicians, creators, like whatever, tech yeah. founders is like, hey, like really take a step back. Be arrogant. I'm arrogant. Like that's the nature of these <laughs> spaces. Assume that like you're going to be successful in some way. Yeah. Um, I've always assumed I'm going to be successful in some way. The real question to ask yourself is, how are you going to get there? Yes. And what are you trying to do with that? Um, if I did a like buzzy like podcast that got a lot of views, yeah. but wasn't passed around Senate yeah. offices during complicated moments, that would have like no actual purpose for me. Right. Um, because I just know, given the growth of the podcast, in 10 years – I'll be good enough, right? Like right. insert Malcolm Glove, a 10,000 hour rule thing. Exactly. Uh, then I'll be able to do both. Yes. But that's what I want to do. Like I want to be, the ideal end state for me is I can be maximally famous, but maximally competent. Important. And that means I'll be like 37, 38. Yeah. Um, and people should ask themselves that because it's just sort of, it's so weird. Like do you ever, do you ever just like notice that? Like, it's like no one, like yes. all these people, like, and this isn't to like dunk on web, they would all be like watching people flit from thing to thing, optimizing. <laughs> it's, brutal. Sort of, it's just brutal and it's lame and it doesn't work. Yes, and yes. you watch people yes. like not do it. I'm like not going to name names, but it's like very there if you're watching. Yes. I saw people go from like, I'm creator economy person. I'm metaverse person. I'm oh, yeah, web three yeah. person. And now I'm climate tech person. Person. And it's literally the lamest thing ever. It is. And, it is. and what people don't realize is this is why the world is so weird, right? Not only are they not catching on when it comes to like the clicks and the views, right? But people in the know also notice this too. That's a great point. Everyone notices this. Like the, the, the current thing guy. Yeah, yeah. This, yeah. This is like the tech version. Like people, like, people are oh, the current thing, all yeah. Ukraine and COVID. Yeah. There's a tech version of the current thing, yeah. which is that. And the other the other problem here too is that like I, I think a huge problem in the industry is that I mean we'll talk let's let's talk about let's go there for a second. Yeah. There's uh the number the, the the biggest red pill, this is my biggest red pill. I felt so self-conscious about my lack of like Twitter. I don't tweet. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, but I'm really lucky in that like soccer has a big Twitter, so I yeah, have, yeah, like, I have seventeen thousand followers. Yeah, but that's just through soccer reach. Right, so right, I have right. a very so I have the I have the perfect. If I DM you, you will respond. Yes, it's, yes. It's, you, it's know, you don't have to worry. Yes, if, it's I, great. if I got a blue check, I'd just be like, I'd be boom. Yeah, just I'm totally done, done. Yeah. Um, but like, I was so self conscious about my lack of Twitter presence until I discovered that so many people, yeah, in industry, have other people write their tweets for them. Really? Oh yeah, like a that's huge. And, and that, that, and that's, that helped me chill out. It's like, okay. Because I don't know if you guys had this experience, it, but one day I was like, man, like, how are these people who worked on tech in their 20s and 30s, yes. comp sci degrees, don't, don't, how are they so fluent in all these topics? They're, right. they're, they're amazing writers. They have nuance. Because they are very well-paid 23-year-olds who are doing that for them. Keep they're, it they're, they're their own hustle departments. Yeah, I've discovered this in like, Previously in video games, that that's like, how's everyone like doing all this marketing all the time? Oh, they just they, they pay people to do that. Just pay somebody. People do that. So like that's that's just like the real. I want, and what sucks is so many of these people who I'm implicitly like talking crap about. Everyone here is obviously smart, right? Exactly. I, I, no exactly. one, I'm, no one who I'm actually mentioning here is someone who I'm like. You need them. You're like, man, like what a mm, dog. Like, oh no. Like yeah. none of like the super TikTok people. Um, actually, you know, you know the person who's like most who's who's threaded the needle. I will speak for Kyla Scanlon. Oh yeah. Kyla is the only person who's mastered how do I get big on a platform where also being super, super deep. And that's it's because, difficult. but that's also because like Kyla is also like a three sport athlete. She yeah. podcasts, she does YouTube, she yep. writes, and she does TikTok. So like, that's an example of someone who's able to say to themselves, yeah. like, what are, and so she's like a super hard worker. Right. And also like, man, like I'm, I'm just like ranting now, so stop me. But like my <laughs> other, my other frustration with like the hustle stuff is too much of like hustle for people. This isn't like the usual hustle culture critique. Yeah. Twenty people like define hustle as like just pumping stuff out. Yes. Like, how do I write like the perfect tweet thread or how do I like clip yes. this episode and not just yes. sort of like for me, I read three to four books a week. Yes. Like that's my version of like hustle right now. Yeah. You know, if I wasn't doing that and I also wasn't tweeting, that'd be like yeah. the real bad thing. Yeah. But like I really think like the 2020s for me, like and this season of the next 50s are just like, just get good at something. Just get good at something. Get really good. Get a salary and just don't care about the views. Like exactly. The fact that I can make like a, you know, multi-six-figure salary just yeah. talking to people is like that's yeah. insane. Like you ever read awesome. like old the old media world? Like it was like, like you you read like all these people, they worked so hard, they didn't make any money. Exactly. No one read them. Just sort of just just be okay with that. Yeah. Um, and just understand that like people knowing you and the retweets, the dopamine hit doesn't last very long. Exactly. Yeah, it's, it's it's a longer, much longer game. So, can we ever uh, expect a senator or anything like that? What do you think? No, obviously, no, no. Here's here's what I'll put. Here's, here's yeah. like because I hate when people give like the fake answer on this. If I have something to say, yes, and I could add value, like I will run for office. Gotcha. That's good. But the, my real critique of Kozlov twenty twenty at Yahoo.com, Marshall. Yes, is he at a fundamental level had nothing to say, right? Nothing to add. And that's what I'm opposed to being. You want to avoid that, Got like, it. like if, if, like, like seriously, like if there's like if there's like a moment where there's an issue, but I know something about, yeah. Oh, but this, this, this is good. This is where like, I think we'll we'll end it. Like my favorite, the quote that I'm obsessed with right now is like, you know, Winston Churchill during during the Blitz was he's yeah. talking to his son Randolph Churchill, and he goes like, I find I see a way through. Gotcha. Um, a way through this. That's good. Like things That's are good. at their absolute worst. Yes. It's a disaster. He's like, I see a way through. And his answer was like, the US will get involved in the war. And gotcha. that's how we're going to do it. There's a path. And that, and that was the way through. Yeah. 
I have to see a way through to get involved in politics and then I'll do it. But, and this applies to everybody. Yeah. Think of like, what is your way through right. in any category that you're doing? Yeah. You want to be a web three poster? You know what? Like that could work for you. That's good. But like actually like, like push yourself. Exactly. Like exactly. say to yourself like, do I actually have something to say or am I just like taking the content of like right. the top 1% of people? Yes, exactly. Am I just like taking Gabby Goldberg's reading list and, and like turning it into tweet it. form? Yes. That's not a way through. Nope. So don't do it. Don't do it. I love that. I really love that. Well, Marshall, uh, thank you so much for coming on. Where can people find the realignment? Where should we send them? Yeah. So a couple of different things. So the realignment is available wherever you listen to your podcast, Spotify, Apple, all those good things. We're also on YouTube. I've started to focus more on YouTube. YouTube. Nice. Oh man, YouTube. We're, we're extending here, but YouTube, uh, YouTube's YouTube's scary because uh, yeah. YouTube there's an actual algorithm. Yes, you so get the titles it's, it's, it's much easier than pot, like the the audio itself. I found. Like, yeah, you it's, get it's, it's, it's oh, I want to say it's much. It's so much harder. Yeah, because well, fair. It's easier to like. I, it, 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 yes, it's, it's, it's an odd trade off. It's an odd trade off. The keywords, yeah. all those things matter. Yes. So like, I've started to take it more seriously. So people should definitely check out the YouTube. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that's the next. Uh, that's the next can of worms. But yeah, the realignment. Um, all those other good things. I'm also on Substack. Awesome. Thanks for having me on the show. Absolutely. Appreciate it, Marshall. Special thanks to our sponsor, Bismarck Analysis, for the support. Bismarck Analysis creates the Bismarck Brief, a newsletter about intelligence-grade analysis of key industries, organizations, and live players. You can subscribe to Bismarck Brief at brief.bismarckanalysis.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week with a new episode of Narratives. Special thanks to Donovan Dorrance, our audio editor. You can check out Donovan's work and music at donovandorrance.com.